1. Let's take our Bibles and read this section through. John 1, 35 to 51. Again the next day, again the next day, John stood and two of his disciples looked upon Jesus as he walked. He said, look, there's the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. Then Jesus turned and saw them following and saith unto them, what seek ye? They said unto him, Rabbi, which is to say, being interpreted, Master, where dwellest thou? He saith unto them, Come and see. They came and saw where he dwelt, and abode with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first finds his own brother Simon, and saith unto him, We have found the witness of personal experience. We have found the Messiah, which is being interpreted, the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. When Jesus beheld him, he said, Thou art Simon the unstable one. Simon the unstable one, the son of John. Thou shalt be Cephas the rock man. Cephas is the Aramaic. Peter is the uh, Greek. Petros is the Greek. And they both mean rock. Thou art Simon unstable. Thou shalt be Cephas the rock, which is by interpretation of stone. The next day following, Jesus would go forth in Galilee and finds Philip and saith unto him, Follow me. Now Philip was best of the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip finds Nathanael and saith unto him, We have found the witness of personal experience. We have found him who Moses and the law and the prophets did write, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip saith unto him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming and saith unto him, Behold, an Israelite in whom is no guile. Nathanael said to him, How did you know me? Jesus answered and said unto him, Before Philip called thee, while you were still under the fig tree, I saw thee. Nathanael answered and said unto him, Rabbi, thou art the Son of God. Thou art the King of Israel. Jesus answered and said unto him, Because I said unto thee, I saw thee under the fig tree. You believe, you did believe, for believest thou, you did believe. Thou shalt see greater things than these. And he saith unto him, that is, Jesus saith unto Nathanael, Verily, verily, I send you. Hereafter, you shall see heaven opened, with an E-D on the end of open. Opened. You will see heaven opened. And the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Now here's the call of the first disciple. We need to look at two or three things by way of introduction. And the first one, and perhaps the most important, is this. Now, when we come to study the New Testament, we need to distinguish three calls of these disciples. I suppose I studied my Bible 20 years before I understood that there were three calls of the disciples. Number one, there's a call to salvation. Number two, there's a call to service. And number three, there's a call to leadership. Three calls of the disciples. And we might chart them like this. This comes out, yes. All right, now this is the uh, end of the ministry of Jesus. This is the fourth Passover. That's April 30 A.D. Here's the third Passover. Here's the second Passover. Here's the first Passover, April, uh, April 27, April 28, April 29. Now, the event which we read just now took place about January 27 A.D. That's the call to conversion. That's the call to being a Christian. That's the call to salvation. First call, the call to salvation. Then about a year later, about January 28 A.D., you remember that incident in Matthew chapter 4 where Jesus said, came across a couple of fishermen and saw them. What did he say to them? Come, follow me, and I'll make you to be. Yeah, that's a year after this John chapter 1. These men were already converted. They already knew Christ. They immediately left their nets. They left their business. They cut the Gordian knot. They left everything and followed Jesus. Now, that's the second call, number two call. That's the call to service. That takes place a year later, January 28, A.D. 
Then about six months later, about July 28 A.D., there's a third call. <clears throat> and that's a call to leadership. And that's given to us in Mark chapter 3. We won't take the time to read it. Mark chapter 3, verses, this one's in Mark 3, about uh, 6 to 13. You remember Jesus goes up to a mountain, spends all night in prayer. Then he comes down, and out of all the disciples, hundreds of them, he chose how many? Twelve of them to be the apostles. Twelve of them to be apostles. That's the call to leadership. Now, there are three calls. Number one, John 1, 35 to 51. The first six, the call to salvation. Here's where they were converted to Christ. That's why John nails it down. It was the tenth hour. He knows the day and the hour when he was saved. The tenth hour. That's why he put it down. It was the hour of his conversion. The call to salvation. January 27, A.D. Then they went back to fishing. Nothing wrong with that. After being saved, they went back to their regular employment. They went back to fishing. One year later, when Jesus began his, his Galilean ministry, one year later, he saw them beside the sea, Peter, Andrew, James, and John. See, that's the name of our first four boys, Peter, Andrew, James, and John. He saw the four of them, and he called them two at a time, follow me, and I will make you to be fishers of men, servants, servants. Leave everything. Come on after me. That's the call to service. That's one year later. Then six months later, he looks over all of the uh, disciples, hundreds of them, goes up, spends the whole night in prayer. Even though he were God, yet as a man he labored under the ministry of the Holy Spirit, and all night he spent in prayer. When that was over, the next day he chose 12 to be with him, and to serve him. Fellowship and service. Chose 12. That's the apostolate. The 12 apostles. Now Judas was an unbeliever. So when Judas committed suicide, they chose another, Mattathias. Paul is not the 12th apostle. Mattathias is. But when John died, and when Thomas died, they didn't select any more. Because it wasn't the death of Judas, it was the defection of Judas, the necessity, the choice of the 12th man. Why 12? Well, because in the millennium, the 12 apostles are going to rule over the 12 tribes back in the land of Palestine. So they had to have 12. Now, those are the three calls of these men. And tonight, we're going to look at the first one, the call to salvation. And it's a great chapter on personal work, on personal evangelism. Now, there are two divisions, just as you have it in your outline. Is that correct? Well, as a matter of fact, you've got those three calls in your outline. Is that right? You have them right there. The call to salvation, John 1. The call to service, one year later, January 28 A.D., Matthew 4, 18 to 22, and the call to leadership, six months later, July, about July 28 A.D., Mark 3, 13 to 19. Now, don't read those now. But when you go home tonight, while it's still fresh in your mind, read yourself to sleep by looking at those. See, you'll probably go to sleep right now listening to me, but go to your second sleep. All right, now here, we got two things here. The call of the first four disciples, uh, Andrew and John, and Peter and James, and then secondly, the call of Philip and Nathaniel. That's the first six disciples, the first six. All right, now we want to look at this first one, the call of the first four disciples, John 1, 35 to 42. Here's the call of the first four disciples, Andrew and John, and then Peter and James. All right, first of all, the first two, just as I have in the outline, the first two disciples are introduced to Christ, 35, 36, 37. Again, the next day, John stood. Now, this is the third day, isn't it? I put down in the margin of my Bible, day one, day two, day three. Look at verse 19. This, the witness of John, that's day one. Look at verse 29. The next day, that's day two. The next day, John seeth Jesus coming unto him. Now we come to verse 35. Again, the next day, that's day three. 
Then I happened to think that 10, that 10th hour is 4 o'clock in the afternoon, so that verses 41, 40, 41, and 42 represent day 4, and verse 43, the day following, is day 5. And then in chapter 2, verse 1, the third day after day 5 is probably day 7 or day 8. That's the chronology. John's very careful to give us this chronology. Now, there are two disciples, and uh, verse 35, and with John the Baptist. Again, the next day, John. Now, that's not the apostle John, the author. That's John the Baptist. Next day, John the Baptist stood and two of his disciples. Now, we know that one is Andrew. The other one is probably John, the man that wrote this gospel. And looking upon Jesus as he walked, he saith, look, there's the Lamb of God. Now, I didn't say that taketh away the sin of the world because he had said that the previous day. And Andrew and John had already heard that. So he didn't need to repeat that. And verse 37, the two disciples heard John speak, and they followed Jesus. That means that John did his work well. Did John tell them, look, there's the Lamb of God. You better follow him. Didn't say that, did it? But when they heard Jesus, when they heard John speak, saw Jesus, they left John, followed Jesus. Why? Because John had done his work well. He had told them, no doubt many times, when I point out the Messiah, you leave me and follow Jesus. Not many Bible college presidents, not many pastors say that. But John the Baptist said it. When you see Jesus, you leave me, follow Jesus. Now I say it ought to be the object of every man in Christian work whether at Mid-South Bible College or in a church to attract men not to himself but to Jesus. And John did his work well. They didn't need to be told to follow him. They did. They, now let me suggest a couple of things here. These men, and here's a very important principle, these men followed the light that God gave them. When they did that, God gave them more light. That's a principle in the Word of God. That's a principle to unsaved people and with saved people. When I follow the light that God gives me, then God gives me more light. When I don't follow that light, God gives me no more light. You know, we have the problem of what about the pagan? What about the heathen in darkest Asia, darkest South America, darkest Africa who have never heard of Jesus Christ? That's a very real problem. I am sure of two things, three things. Number one, that God gives to every man a measure of light. Romans 1, Romans 2. He gives them revelation of himself in nature. Romans 1, 18 to 20. So that they are without excuse. Romans 1, 20. And Romans 2, 12 to 15, he reveals himself to them internally in conscience so that although they don't have the law of the Old Testament, they have the word of the law written on the heart. Don't steal. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. They don't have it written down, but they have it written in their conscience. They stand before God guilty. I know, secondly, that a man is without excuse. Every man's without excuse. God's not going to judge him according to the light that he's given to you and me but a judgment according to the light that he has given to them. They are without excuse. I know third, that when a man responds to the light God gives to him, God gives him more light. When Naaman responded, here two men, Naaman and Melchizedek, both outside the pale of Israel, both saved. When they responded to what light God gave them. Naaman did it rather reluctantly. When they did it, then God gave them more. They were saved. When I respond to light God gives me, then he'll give me more. That's a very important principle in finding God's will for my life as a Christian. When I submit to what God has told me, and I do that, then he's going to show me more. See, Or the old saying, one step at a time. One step at a time. When I take that step, then God gives me light next. God's not going to give me the blueprint for my whole life. You know why? 
I wouldn't need faith then. See? One step at a time. I do that, responded. So here are the disciples. They listened to John, they responded, and then John pointed them to Christ, and they left John and followed Jesus. And by the way, when it says in verse 37, they followed Jesus, may I be technical? That's in the aorist tense. That means it's decisive. That's a lifelong commitment. They followed Jesus. Lifelong. They may not have realized all that was involved. They no doubt did not. But it was a lifelong commitment, and they followed Jesus Christ. And a beautiful thing about here, John didn't mind losing his disciples. Now, when we come to John chapter 4, we find that John's disciples didn't like it. John's disciples didn't like it, but John didn't mind it, as long as they went to Jesus, not to somebody else. Because John said, he must... Increase and I must decrease. May I suggest to you sometime, although you ought to be here when we study John 3, that there are three M-U-S-T in John chapter 3. The Son of Man must be lifted up. You must be born again. He must increase. See? Now, I won't be able to preach that sermon in any of your churches. <laughs> I've, I've gone and shot my wad. And I've only got about seven of them. Now I'm down to six now. But you study that sometime. And that third one is a principle which John himself did it. All right, now the next first two disciples begin to interview Jesus, 38 and 39. Then Jesus turned and saw them following, and he said to them, What seek you? What are you looking for? Now he didn't ask that for information. Just as God didn't say to Adam in Genesis chapter 3, Adam, where art thou? Adam wasn't lost, as St. Augustine said. Adam was not lost to God's consciousness, but to God's fellowship. You know, God wasn't looking around, wonder where Adam is. Hey, where are you, Adam? See, he knew exactly where Adam was. What God was trying to do was to, he knew that Adam was lost. Adam didn't know that. He wanted Adam to be cognizant of his lost estate. Before a man can get saved, he's got to get lost. And it's harder sometimes to get a man lost than it is to get him saved. Adam, where art thou? Adam, look where you are now. That's the thrust of the question. Now, here's this question that Jesus asked. Um, uh, uh, what seek you? By the way, this is the first public word of Jesus Christ. First word he uttered in his public ministry. What that we have record of. What, what are you looking for? Now, what he, what he was doing, why did he ask that question? Well, he asked it, you know, as we have the person that's shy and uh, timid, perhaps, and uh, we ask a question like this, or counsel asks a question like this, to enable a person to open up his heart. You know, nine times out of ten, when a person comes to you with their problem, they're not going to tell you the real thing, nine times out of ten. And you had to kind of probe. And Jesus asked this question. He knew they were a little shy, a little embarrassed, a little reluctant, perhaps, to talk with him. So he asked this question to enable them to open up their hearts. And Jesus was always ready to assist a man who was earnest in seeking himself. So he asked this question. What are you looking for? See, that's a good question, isn't it? That's a good question in soul winning. To ask a man, what are you looking for in life? What are you looking for? First question in the Old Testament of God, Adam, where are you? First question of God in the New Testament is public ministry, what are you looking for? So he said, what, in verse 38, what seek you? They said in response, they said unto him, Rabbi, R-A-B-B-I, Rabbi, which means uh, my teacher. That's Aramaic, Rabbi. And since John was writing for Greek readers over in Ephesus, he always had to translate these Aramaic words, which is to say being translated master, or really my master, that I on the end, that I on the end is a Hebrew and Aramaic my, my, the I on the end, Rabboni, and Rabbi. Rabbi is my master. That I signifies what we would say am I. We put it, my master. 
they would take that personal pronoun and put it at the end, as they also did in their verbs, both the Hebrew and the Greek. So he said, Rabbi, my master, which is to say being interpreted, where dwellest thou? They asked a question and answer. Now, they weren't saying, what's the number of your house? They weren't saying that. What they were saying is, we would like to talk to you at length in private. Where are you staying? We're out here in the open. We'll get interrupted. We would appreciate it if we could go where you are staying and sit down and talk with you because we've got some heart-searching questions that we want answered. Where are you staying? That is, may we come to your home and talk with you. So Jesus said, verse 39, Jesus said to him, well, call my secretary and make an appointment. <laughs> no, he didn't, did he? He said, what did he say? Come right away. See, Jesus knew. Here were two earnest, honest souls. Come right now. And it's you shall not come and see, but come and you shall see. Come right now. Come right now. And you'll see. It's urgent. Don't wait. Don't wait. Come right now. And you'll see. And he doesn't mean you'll see where I live. He means you'll see spiritually. So the disciples respond. They came and saw where he dwelt, and they abode with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. Now, what do we mean by the tenth hour? Well, the Jews reckon time from six in the morning till six at night, from six at night to six in the morning. So the tenth hour would be at four o'clock in the afternoon. The Romans reckon time often, not always, but often, as we do, from 12 o'clock at night, 12 o'clock noon, 12 o'clock noon, 12 o'clock night. So the 10th hour would be 10 a.m. Now, which isn't here? Well, it's a, a hard, difficult problem, but I'll tell you what my conclusion is. My conclusion is, is that it's, uh, they use the Jewish mode of reckoning, and it's 4 o'clock in the afternoon. Now, the problem we got is over in John 19, it says he was crucified about, about the third hour. We have a problem there. But I think here he's calling it, I think he's doing the Jewish method of reckoning time, and the tenth hour is four o'clock in the afternoon. Now, uh, the only reason I suggest that is that when they go home with him, they stay the night. Look at verse, verse uh, 39. He said, come and see. They came and saw where he dwelt and abode with him the rest of that day and then all night. It was about the tenth hour, four o'clock in the afternoon. One of the two heard him speak to John, uh, John speak, and father was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first finds his own. That's the next day. That's day four. So it was all occupied, verses 35 through 40, on the third day. And they went home with Jesus and stayed. Now, why do you think he put the tenth hour? Why do you think he put the hour? Because this is the hour of the, uh, of the conversion of the author of this gospel. When John, the apostle who wrote this gospel, put down the 10th hour, he was nailing down the hour of his conversion. That's when he came to know Christ as Savior. Now, is it necessary for a person to be able to point to the exact hour of his conversion? No, it's not. It's good if he can. Uh, I have to remember the summer, the age of 14, when I trusted the Lord, the little church of Monterey Park, California. I believe I was saved. At least I was saved or I came to full assurance of my salvation in that hour, full consciousness of it. Some people, however, don't, you know. Some people, like, uh, for example, Billy Graham's wife, have a very hard time pointing to the hour of her conversion. A person that's lived a life, of, especially a hard life, a life of sin, and then is dramatically converted at the age of 30, 32, can usually point to the exact day and hour and minute conversion. Somebody that's reared in a Christian home, however, uh, comes to trust the Lord. Not that it's a process. Spiritual birth is instantaneous, but it may be very difficult to point to the hour of spiritual birth and distinguish that from the clear consciousness of that, and third, from the assurance of my salvation. The important thing is that I know that I'm saved right now. And if I'm not sure, 
And I did this, I suppose, four or five times. Uh, I got down to my knees, and my, I heard a strong preacher I used to listen to over the radio when I was 16, 17 years of age, even after I started preaching. And uh, uh, I just got down to my knees and said, Lord, if I've never really done business with you, I haven't trusted you, I'm going to trust you right now as my personal Savior. I said, I did that four or five times. I was probably wrong in doing that. But I'd rather err in that direction and get to heaven than see err in the other direction. So <clears throat> I was just kind of uh, playing it safe. But uh, the important thing is that I know. Now, I don't want to get into the question of how do you know, except to suggest that God gives us three testimonies. How do I know I'm saved? The Bible says so. Holy Spirit says so, and the changed life says so. The Bible says so. First, John 5, 13. These things have I written unto you, that you may know that you have eternal life. These things have I written. The Bible says so. God said if I trusted his son Jesus Christ as my Savior, that I'd, he'd save me. So when I faced this issue, and I had to face and face the first year of seminary, finally, I had to ask, which is going to lie to me more easily, God or my feelings? And I settled, my feelings. Listen, I talked last week to the student of Wednesday. In fact, they asked me, since Wednesday was October the 31st, they asked me to speak on, in chapel on Martin Luther and the Protestant Reformation, and I did. I took about 15 minutes to tell the story of how Martin Luther came along in the spiritual experience. Martin Luther was got a BA and an MA, was training to be a study for law. Suddenly, he dropped out of his law course to the disappointment of his father and entered a monastery, the Augustinian Order of the Monks. And for about the next eight, ten years, until he was converted, 1512, from 1503 to 1512. He said he was in torment. Hell was very real to him. The eternal judgment of God was very real to him. The fires of eternal judgment were very real. And he would fear and quake. Oh, my sin, my sin, my sin. He would cry out at night. You know, uh, if I can say it uh, properly and personally, I can identify with Martin Luther. I did also. Hell was very real to me. The eternal judgment of God was very real to me. And I would wake up at night and think about this, and I'd say, oh, Lord, I don't want to perish eternally in hell. And it was a terrible experience to go through. I settled it. And I settled it by John 5, 24. I read the incident of, of R.A. Torrey and also a little track, safety, security, and enjoyment. Verily, verily, I say unto thee, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life, shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. And I said to myself, I'm going to stand here and not on my feelings. Stand here, not my feelings. I've never been troubled by it since. The word of God says so. The Holy Spirit, Romans 8, 16, says so. But... If as a Christian, I harbor sin in my life, the testimony of the Holy Spirit is cleansed. And then the changed life says so, and that's all First John. So these two disciples came to Jesus, and Andrew and John, and John nailed down the hour of his conversion. It was the tenth hour. Now, third, these first two disciples invite the second two to come to Christ. Look at verses 40. 41 and 42. One of the two that heard John speak and follow him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first binds his own brother, Simon. And he said unto him, We found the Messiah, which is being interpreted the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. When Jesus beheld him, he said, Thou art Simon the son of John. Thou shalt be Cephas, which is by interpretation. Stone. Now, let's look at three things here quickly. The first, Andrew is identified as one of the brothers. Verse 40, one of the two men is, is Andrew. He's identified. The other man is not identified, but Andrew is. Now, Andrew's name means courageous. 
He's the lesser known. He always lived under the shed of his brother Peter. Why, look here. When he's first introduced in the Bible, how's he introduced? Simon Peter's brother. See? Uh, Simon Peter's brother. That's the way he's always introduced. He had to sail under the shadow of his brother Peter. Always did that. And yet the greatest thing Andrew ever did was to bring his own brother to Jesus Christ, bring Peter to Christ. The greatest thing that Edward Kimball ever did was to bring Dwight L. Moody to Christ. The greatest thing Monica ever did was to pray for son Augustine until he was converted. Some of us, uh, most of us, all of us, perhaps never make the news, the national news. But it may be in the providence of God that we will have the privilege of leading somebody in the providence of God who God is going to greatly use, greatly use in the conversions of countless thousands of souls. And here was Andrew. Now, who's the other man? Who's the other one? I think it was John. Now, I can marshal evidence for that, but I don't have the time. I think it's John. He doesn't mention himself. That's, the, that's what he does all through the book. And he brings him to Jesus. Andrew does three things. He finds his brother. He confesses Christ to his brother. He witnesses to him. And then third, he brings him to Jesus. Now, let's look at this. He first finds his own brother. Now, what does that mean first? Does that mean first before he did anything else? Or does it mean the first thing, the first person he found was his own brother? Or does it mean that Andrew first found his brother... And then John secondly found his brother. I think that's what it means. I think it means that Andrew first, before John, Andrew, the same day, right away, first of all, went out and got his brother. Andrew got his brother Peter. And then John, secondly, went out and looked around for his brother, James. And both Andrew and John brought their brothers to Jesus. Andrew brought Peter, and John brought James. He first finds his own brother. He did it immediately, and he did it at the hardest place. Where's the hardest place? Over in Formosa? Right at home, where they know what kind of feet you have. See? No, the old French have a proverb, no man is a hero to his own valet. That means that the people who are closest to us know that we've got feet of clay. Now, you know, I can get out of Flagstaff, Arizona and preach with ease a lot more easily than I can at home because they know my life at home, see? And so as not to let you off the hook, they know yours also. The hardest place to witness is home. And Andrew went out right away, immediately, didn't waste any time. He didn't go and take a six-month soul winning course. He go to Mid-South Bible College right away. You see, he went out, and right away he got his brother, and he witnessed to his brother, verse 41. He first finds his own brother Simon, says to him, We have found, personal experience, we have found the Messiah, which is being interpreted the Christ. Now, Messiah and Christ the same. Messiah comes from the Hebrew. Christ comes from the Greek. The Hebrew is ma-shak. The verb is ma-shak, which means to anoint. And the Greek is kristao, which means to anoint. And Mashiach is the anointed one, and Christos is the anointed one, and they mean exactly the same. One comes from the Hebrew, Messiah, and the other comes from the Greek. You remember when uh, Samuel went down to look for a successor to Saul, went down to Jesse's home? Remember that? Jesse called all of his seven big boys out. Not one of these. Got any more? Well, he got a little boy. Bring him out. And when he brought him out, God said to Samuel, that's my man. So what did he do? Took that vial of oil, little vial of oil, and David knelt down, and he poured that oil out on David's head, a symbol of the Holy Spirit upon a person, anoint him for service. That's Moshach, Mashiach, Messiah. Jesus is the anointed one, the Messiah of God. He's going to be God's uh, servant. So, so Andrew says to Peter, we found the Messiah which is being interpreted the Christ. 
verse 42. And then Andrew proceeded to enter into a theological discourse. You know what he did? What did he do? Brought him to Jesus. That's the best thing to do. Brought him to Jesus. What does the Old Testament say? Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. He brought him to Jesus. Personally introduced his brother to Jesus. First sermon I ever preached, as I wrote in that little letter, uh, at the age of 16, was this verse right here. I plagiarized George Truett. <laughs> he first finds his own brother. George Truett was Dr. Criswell's predecessor. And I got hold of his book when I, I used to go up to the old library at the college and read the sermons of great preachers. And I read George W. Truett's book, and one was entitled, The Doom of Delay. And the other one, he brought him to Jesus. My first sermon was he brought him to Jesus, and the second one, the doom of delay. <laughs> the only thing is, I know that it took George Truett about 50 minutes to preach that sermon. I know that. It took me about eight minutes. <laughs> but I confessed my sin, and I've never spoken as short since then. <laughs> now, you'll get that in a few minutes. <laughs> but... Um, First sermon I ever preached was this one. He brought him to Jesus. You know something, my friend? Wherever we see Andrew, we see him three times, he's never out front and center. Andrew's never the great orator, the preacher. Andrew comes out on the stage, so to speak, three times. And every time, he's bringing somebody to Christ. In, Act, in John chapter 142, he brings his brother to Jesus. In John chapter 6, I think it's verse 8, where Jesus was faced with that great multitude without anything to eat, and there was a little boy who had a few loaves and fishes, what one of the disciples was willing to get off the log and condescend himself to talk to a little boy? You know who it was. It was Andrew. And he brought the little boy to Jesus. Then... In Acts chapter 12, when there were some Greeks that wanted to see Jesus and they couldn't get to him, the other disciples kept him away. It was Andrew who got the Greeks and brought him to Jesus. And wherever we find Andrew, Andrew is the soul winner. He couldn't preach. In the book of Acts, we never find Andrew preaching. Matter of fact, I don't remember we find much of Andrew doing anything in the book of Acts. He's silent. He doesn't stand out, but he does something we all can do. That is, he brought men to Christ, engaged in soul winning. And every time we see Andrew, he's bringing somebody to Jesus Christ. And right here, he did the greatest thing. And then Jesus meets Peter and gives him a new name. Look at verse 42. Brought him to Jesus, and when Jesus beheld him, he said, Thou art Simon, the son of John. Thou shalt be called Cephas which is by interpretation of stone. Now, look over at Genesis 49. I hope I'm right here. Let me look and see, and if I'm not, I won't let you discover it. No, I'm wrong. Genesis 49. Genesis 49. Simeon and Levi, verse 5. Reuben, the son's stable. Genesis 49, 5. Simeon and Levi are brethren. Instruments of cruelty are in their habitations. O oh, my soul, come not thou into their secret. Unto their assembly, mine honor, be not thou united. For in their anger, they slew a man. Their self will they hamstrung off. You remember what they did. Jacob's daughter had been violated. So these two brothers went in, and they had the whole little town, all the men circumcised, and about the second day, they went in and slaughtered all the men. They were men of anger, hot-tempered. So was Andrew in the New Testament. Hot-tempered, impulsive. Everybody else leave you. Not I. Not I. And then little 17-year-old girl, you know, got him to call down off that. But Jesus saw it. Look at verse 42. That is John. 142. Your name's Simon. You're going to be called Cephas, the stone. 
Here's a great thing. See, Jesus Christ knows what we really are, and he knows what we can be by the grace of God. Jesus knows what we really are. I don't know what you really are, and you don't know what really I am. We all can put up front. But Jesus knows what we really are. He can read our character. He knows what's on my soul. He knows, and he strips us. He knows what we are. But he doesn't leave us there. He took an Abram and made him an Abraham. He took a Jacob, a sneak and a thief, and he made him a prince of God, Israel. And he took a Simon and made him a what? You know, when you work with people, and especially when you work with children, a uh, person has to have this kind of conviction. He has to see not only what a person is, but what he can be by the grace of God. Man can't do that, then he ought to get out of Christian work. The man can't see what a person can be by the grace of God, then he ought to get out of Christian work. Jesus not only saw what Simon was, he knew what he could be by God's grace. He'll be a rock. Some people call that the eighth miracle. When Jesus turned water into rock. Matter of fact, a friend of mine, Sam Patterson, about 24 years ago, preached on the eighth miracle in the Gospel of John. Jesus turned water into rock when he transformed Simon. Didn't do it until after Pentecost. All right, now let's move along to the next part quickly. Verses 43 to 51, the call of Philip and Nathaniel. May I suggest, and I don't have time to do it, look at those first three statements of Jesus in 35 to 42. The first one is a question. Verse 38, what seek ye? The second one is an invitation. Verse 39, come and see. And the third one is a commission. You are Simon, you will be Peter. I suggest that to your study. The first three statements, Jesus in his public ministry. Now, number two, the call of Philip and Nathaniel, 43 to 51. Now, let's look at this quickly. The day following, I think this is day five. I think 35 to 40, or to 39, 40, is day three. 41 and 42 is day four, and 43 to 51 is day five. So the day following, Jesus would go forth north into Galilee, and he finds Philip. Now, heretofore, they found Jesus. They sought him. Here, Jesus finds Philip and says to him, follow me. And here it's in the present tense. Over in verse 37, it's the aorist tense, decisive act. Here it's in the present tense. Keep on following me. Now, Philip was of Bethsaida, which is the city of Andrew and Peter, and the city upon which Jesus pronounced a dreadful judgment in Matthew chapter 11 because it has so much life. Philip finds Nathaniel. Philip finds Nathaniel and saith unto him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets did write, Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph. Philip is number five. Nathaniel's number six. Philip means lover of horses. Nathaniel. Nathaniel may be the same as Bartholomew. Never is Bartholomew mentioned in the Gospel of John, and never is Nathaniel mentioned in the Synoptic Gospels. And the conclusion is that Nathaniel probably is, and there are five or six reasons into which I'm not going, why, which sustain this, that Nathaniel, Nathaniel is the Bartholomew of the... Um, of the Synoptic Gospels. And if so, then Nathaniel, of course, is, a, um, is a, an apostle, one of the twelve apostles. Now, Philip says to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets did write, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. In other words, he's saying that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the promised Messiah of the Old Testament. Nathaniel raised a question in verse 46. Nathaniel says to him, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Nathaniel comes from Cana, which is near Nazareth. He knows how insignificant Nazareth was. Uh, and he doesn't mean, I don't think he means 
Nazareth of ill repute. It was of ill repute. I don't think that's what he had in mind. He meant insignificant. Insignificant. And nothing's predicted about it in the Old Testament. So can, can any good thing, especially the Messiah, come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, well, what? What did he say? Come and see. Come on and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and saith to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom is no guile. Now there's a play on words. Would you listen? Behold, an Israelite in whom there's no guile. He is guileless, straightforward. Now that word D is D-O-L-O-S, which means a bait that's used to attract an animal. He means something that's used to deceive a person. The word is used in the Old Testament, and it's used of Jacob. And Jacob's other name was Israel. William Temple, the great English preacher, translated this way, Behold, an Israelite in whom there is no Jacob. And this son of Israel, Nathaniel, was unlike his predecessor, Jacob. He was without guile. You know, that's a beautiful quality. Beautiful quality. We always tend to think somebody comes to us, you know, we tend to think, what has he got under the counter? What's he got under the counter? We tend to hold back or shade a little, you know. When you deal a lot with people, you tend to get this way. You get gun shy. You get gun shy. And you tend, you don't deal dishonestly, but not quite guilelessly. Now, the white Jesus said, you ought to be wise as serpent, but gentle as a dove, and that's true. But at the same time, here's a beautiful quality, guileless. There's one man that I always thought, and my wife and I always thought was guileless, and that was Brother Reed. I named my first boy. He was guileless. There was no guile in him, no deception. He was all up on the front. You could tell it man without guile and that's that's a beautiful quality and Nathaniel said to him see Nathaniel here's another no, no false modesty Nathaniel said well, how did you know me you've never met me and Jesus said to him listen before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree communing and thinking about God I saw thee I knew you and I knew what was going on in your mind that's the whole impact Nathaniel answered and said to him, Rabbi, and he gives him two things, thou art the, and the article is there, not thou art a son of God, but thou art the son of God, thou art what else? Now will you look here, he ascribes to him two things, two things, in relationship to God, thou art the son of God, in relationship to the nation of Israel, thou art the king of Israel. Now, in the Old Testament, God alone was Israel's king. In the interbiblical period, kingship of Israel was ascribed to God the Messiah. Either way, when Nathaniel was said this, thou art the son of God, thou art the king of Israel, he was saying two things. Number one, he was saying, you're not simply human. You're more than human. You're God's son. And when he said, thou art the king of Israel, and he was an Israelite, he was saying, in effect, I submit to your kingship. I here would submit to your kingship. So Jesus said, verse 50, Jesus said, because I sent thee, I saw thee under the tree, big tree, believest thou, or you do believe. Fine, good, that's fine. On that evidence, on that evidence, not too much, but on that evidence, on that light, you trusted me. Now, said Jesus, you're going to see greater things. I'm going to give you more evidence. The same principle. The man that responds to the light God has given to him, God will give more light. You respond to this, I'm going to give you more. You'll see more miracles. Then he said a very strange thing, a hard thing. He saith unto him, Verily, verily, I send you. Hereafter, you shall see heaven opened with an on. And the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Now, what do you mean by this? 
Well, I'll look here, will you? Two things, let me see if I can get at them quickly. Jesus said you'll see heaven open, one, and you'll see, secondly, the angels ascending, going up, and descending upon the Son of Man. You will see heaven open, open. That speaks of communication. Open, that's the perfect tense. Open, perfect tense speaking of something that takes place and its results are permanent, never to be changed. See heaven open, open. That means communication between heaven and earth. Heaven's no longer silent. Sir Robert Anderson wrote a book, magnificent book. He was the head of Scotland Yard and a devout Christian and, and a tremendous Bible student. He wrote a book that was given to me by one of our students 24, 25 years ago, called The Silence of God. God spoke. He spoke his final word in Jesus Christ in the first century. He hasn't spoken anymore since that day. He's going to speak again. The silence of God. Why doesn't God speak? When six million Jews are murdered in Europe, when the Cambodians are murdered today. The silence of God, that's a problem. God spoke, he will speak. What Jesus is saying is, God has spoken, the heavens open. There is communication between heaven and earth. Then he said, yes, you will see the angels ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Now, I don't think he means to take that literally. Don't mean to think, and he's not referring to the baptismal scene. And he's not referring to John chapter 12. He's reflecting something, experience of Jacob. You remember in Genesis chapter 28, when Jacob was running away from home, getting away from Esau, he slept at Bethel. I've always wondered, how did he sleep with a rock for a pillow? See, but he slept with a rock for a pillow. And that night, and he had a dream. He, no wonder he had a dream with a rock for a pillow. And in that dream, you know, in that dream, he saw a ladder to heaven. Saw a ladder to heaven. And the angels ascending and descending. The ladder was the means of getting from earth to heaven. There's no ladder in verse 51 because Jesus Christ is the ladder. See? What he's saying are two things. Now look here. What he's saying, number one, heaven is opened now. There's communication. Communication. Number two, I'm the ladder. I'm the means of communication. I'm the means of communication. Heaven is opened. Heaven is opened. There's communication between God and man. And number two, I am the ladder of communication. What did Jesus say in John 14, 6? I am the way, the truth, the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. What did Jesus say in John 1.18? No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he hath led him out in the open. What did the disciples say in Acts 4? Neither is there salvation in any other. For there's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. What did Paul say in 1 Timothy chapter 2? There is one God and one mediator between God, no human priest, one mediator between God and man, man Christ Jesus. Heaven open, communication, angels descending, ascending, descending upon the Son of Man, he's the ladder, he's the means of communication between heaven and between earth. A tremendous, tremendous, claim on the part of Jesus Christ. And of course, he supported it. Now, what are we going to say by way of conclusion? What are we going to say by way of conclusion? Let me say three things quickly by way of conclusion. First of all, here's a great passage on personal witnessing. But I want to suggest three lessons here. I want to suggest two of them quickly and then spend a minute or two on the last one. The first one is uh, a great lesson here on this passage on the titles of Christ. Great passage on the titles of Christ. What is Jesus called in verse 
41. Messiah, the Christ. Called the Messiah. What is he called in verse 49? The Son of God, isn't he? What else is he called in verse 49? King of Israel. What is he called in verse 51? Well, he's called the Son of Man. And what is he called in verse 36? Lamb of God. I know, let me explain one. The favorite title of Jesus for himself was the Son of Man. The favorite title of Jesus for himself is the Son of Man. About once every three years, I preach on the radio a sermon on the favorite title of Jesus for himself, Son of Man. I think that's used almost any times, and it's used virtually altogether by Jesus. His favorite title was not Jesus. His favorite title was not Christ. His favorite title for himself was the Son of Man. The Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. The Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister, to give his life a ransom for many. Even so must the Son of Man, John 3, be lifted up. The favorite title of Jesus for himself was the Son of Man. Now, the background of that is Daniel chapter 7, where one like unto the Son of Man comes to God the Father, and receives from him the title deed for the rulership of this earth. Daniel chapter 7, that's the background. So, when Jesus stood before Pilate, uh, before the Sanhedrin, and they said, Who are you? Are you, are you the Messiah? Thou sayest, you're right. Then he goes on to say, Hereafter you will see me, the Son of Man, descending, Great power, the clouds of the angels. When they said that, they said, when he said that, they said he speaks blasphemy. Right, if he were not the Son of Man. He was claiming to be that great divine figure of Daniel chapter 7. Now, why does Jesus call himself the Son of Man? Are you listening? The reason I believe that Jesus calls himself the Son of Man is this. We call people by that which is unique not by that which they share. If we see a fellow six feet six and he's about like a rail, what do we call him? Slim. See a fellow that's four feet eight, we call him shorty. We see a fellow that's real, real fat, we call him chubby. See a fellow that's real red-headed, we call him red. I had a friend of mine at the seminary. He was bald, he lost his hair, and uh, his girlfriend nicknamed him Curly. <laughs> that's unusual usually we call a person by that which distinguishes them that's unique now are you listening what is it that's unique to Jesus in the Trinity Father Son Holy Spirit what's unique eternity no they're all three eternal omnipotent no they're all omnipotent immutable no they're all changeless what is the one thing that distinguishes Jesus from the Father and the Holy Spirit. He became a man. Became a man. That's the distinguishing quality. So Jesus calls himself the Son of Man. Don't get the idea, which is very possible and floats around, that the Son of God speaks of his deity and the Son of Man speaks of his humanity. That's not true. The Son of Man speaks of his divinity. Daniel chapter 7. But it's the title that emphasizes his uniqueness within the Trinity. And his uniqueness within the Trinity is that although he is God, like Father and Holy Spirit, unlike the Father and Holy Spirit, he is also a man. So he calls himself the Son of Man. That's a tremendously high uh, divine title. And it's the title that Jesus loved. Secondly, notice true Christian experience. They found the light, they followed the light, and they shared the light. And now third, the other thing I want to look at is this matter of witnesses. Let me look at that and we'll be through. Here's a great chapter in witnesses. And I'd like to say many things, but I'm only going to say two. I'd like to say many things, but here, because here's a, perhaps the greatest chapter 
except maybe John chapter 4 where Jesus finds the woman beside the well. Here's the greatest chapter on soul winning in all the Gospel of John. Now, what is witnessing? Witnessing involves essentially two things. The Greek word for witness is martyreo, and a witness is a martyr, from which we get the word martyr. And martyreo is the verb. Now, what is witnessing? Witnessing involves essentially two things, basically. Number one, to tell men what Jesus Christ did for them. And number two, to tell men what Jesus Christ means to me. Witnessing involves two things, to tell men what Jesus did, who he is and what he did. He's the son of God. Jesus Christ came from heaven to earth, born of a virgin went to the cross, died for sinners, bore my sins in his own body on the tree. Third day arose and went to heaven. He's coming again, and he's willing and able to save any who come to him, to tell men what Jesus did for them. But secondly, witnessing cannot be what they call a carried story. It's got to be firsthand. No law court allows secondhand testimony, does it? Firsthand. So here, it's got to be a first-hand thing. Not only what Jesus did, but what he means to me. What did they say? We have found. We have found. Witnessing what Jesus did for them, what he means to me. Now, when we got all said and done, I think right here we have epitomized the three simple steps in witnessing for Christ. Three of them. What are those three? Well, look at verses 41 and 42. You circle three words and you got them. Matt, John chapter 1. Now we're in the Gospel of John. John chapter 1, verse 41 and verse 42. Circle three words and you get, really, when you boil it all down, you get what witnessing involves. Verse 41, 42. Three simple steps. First word, the circle is the word find it. Find it. When it involves going out and finding people. Secondly, the word found. That's a confession. We found the Messiah. That's a personal confession of what Jesus means to me, what he's done, what he means.